Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the summit. From school broadcasts, Hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. Welcome to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This series features the stories of creative and innovative educators who are influencing, motivating, and inspiring Hawaii, the nation, and the world. Now, let's send it off to your host, Josh Rapoon. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Today we are with Mickey Kakesi, an epic educator at Eva Mackay Middle School. Her principal is a friend and colleague of mine, the equally epic Kim Sanders. It is because of Kim that we have this wonderful opportunity to interview Mickey today. Mickey's resume and portfolio alone would be all the reason we needed to do this episode, but Mickey is one of our 40 Milliken Award winners for 2019-2020, which, frankly, is completely spectacular. We are so privileged to talk to Mickey today. Mickey has a BA in art from the University of Hawaii in Manoa and a master's in elementary education from the University of Phoenix. Currently, she teaches seventh grade math, STEM, and coding at Eva Mackay Middle on Oahu's west side. Mickey, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So excited. Awesome. So, Mickey, our format is called 10 questions. So the, the following 10 questions will be for you, okay? Okay. All right, so question number one. Mickey, I want to talk about how you shifted careers from advertising to teaching. I'm super fascinated by these kinds of shifts because uh, I've been through a series of shifts myself from career to career, and I remember those moments almost like they were yesterday. There were, there were four of them for me. So what was that moment a year into your advertising career that you realized you wanted to teach? Um, so growing up, I always wanted to be a graphic designer, um, wanted to go to school for it, wanted to pursue that creativity um, because my dad was, you know, he was an artist. Um, so I wanted to do the same thing that he did. And um, as I went into this advertising agency um, right after college, you know, uh, as I kept getting the jobs, I wasn't feeling that um, passion of mine and I wasn't feeling like I was making an impact. So, you know, I thought about, okay, my mom was a teacher. You know, I used to help her watch preschoolers every day after school during high school. And I was like, you know what, I don't want to be like my mom. And eventually I thought about it and I thought, you know, just helping kids and seeing them grow and succeed that was something that I was was I guess I was more wanting to do because it, it fulfilled 
I guess, what my purpose was, and it was to help others. Was it a slow realization, or did you just sort of come to it one day, like, this is this is not going to be it for me? Um, well, in, um, in college, my last semester, um, I went through a really tough, um, tough time because I had a, a loved one that, you know, um, he had committed suicide and that kind of put life into perspective and being the one left on this earth, it kind of makes you think about, you know, what am I doing to help my community? What am I doing that's going to fulfill my passion? What am I doing that, what am I doing in this world to help others, you know? And it, it, it really made me think about what do I want to do in life? You know, what, how can I impact people with my story? How can I use what my, my experiences in a positive way? Mm. And so you began to think about making that shift and trying to figure out what it is that you really want to do. Um, yeah. So Mickey, in, in many ways, I, I know that you were in advertising for a pretty short period of time, about a year, correct? Yeah. So in, in many ways, advertising and teaching are, are similar concepts. I learned that after 17 years in the classroom. Um, advertisers sell products and services. Teachers, hopefully, sell a love of learning. Um, so what skills and habits and dispositions did you bring from that year of advertising um, to your teaching as you began to become a teacher? Um, I think one of the main things was being flexible um, and understanding that you need to take risks and make those mistakes in order for you to learn from it. Every day is a learning experience. And through this advertising agency, I would have stacks and stacks of jobs to do. And it was very overwhelming. But at the same time, I have to learn how to um, manage my time and how to um, work on my stress management and more about my self-awareness, you know, what, what what did I need? What kind of environment did I need to do these radio ads? Or what kind of creativity did I need? And who can I collaborate with to help me when I had a writer's block or um, when I couldn't fulfill a job? So a lot of those things I bring into the classroom because I feel like it takes, it's not just one person that can create something. It takes a team. It takes a group of ideas um, for something awesome to happen. And I feel like I can bring that into the classroom. Wow, that's so awesome. Mickey, my, my wife was uh, decades in television advertising. Um, and over the years, uh, the 20 years that I've been with her, um, I've watched her do exactly what you're talking about, which is working to, to instill flexibility in her team and working to have her team figure out how to reach out to resources in order to get the work mm -hmm. done. So um, that's that's pretty cool. There, there are many, many educators out there who come from careers in business and other organizations. I, I brought my experiences and skills first as a chef and then as a hotel manager to my teaching, and I and I pass them down to my students. So in in what do you do, what kind of work do you do to pass down 
those specific experiences and habits and dispositions from your business um, time to your middle school students? Like what, what kinds of things specifically do you see yourself doing with them that means that you're passing on a previous experience, if that makes sense? Um, so in my classroom, whenever anyone steps into my classroom, they can already tell from the minute they walk in that it's a totally different environment. Um, I have flexible seating. Um, I It's more student-centered. Everything is hands-on. It's never quiet in my classroom. And what's cool is my students, they're very eager to learn about who I am personally. And sometimes people forget that teachers are humans and that we have struggles, we have challenges. So me opening up my personal stories and telling them challenges that I've overcome or experiences that I've had, it helps them to make that connection and to build that relationship so that when we start collaborating, they're able to feel comfortable in a safe environment in order to take those risks and make those mistakes and want to learn and want to please because we have that positive relationship, they want to succeed because they know that I have those expectations. Although I tell them, you know, even though I'm the teacher, I'm learning with you. So it's more of a collaborative relationship versus I'm the, I'm the teacher. So you, all you have to do is sit down and listen to me. Hmm. I basically talk for about five to 10 minutes teaching them about the lesson and then the rest of the class period, it's, it's hands-on working, pair programming, um, collaborating, getting that peer, that peer feedback, and me observing how they're interacting and, and what I can do to help them as they learn and see the process. Mm. So that's a perfect segue to question number two. Um, in, a, in a personal statement that you shared with me, which I absolutely loved, um, you talk about hands-off versus hands-on learning, especially when it comes to making personal connections with students. You even went so far as to say that establishing personal connections is fundamental to education, which is a, a strong statement. And I, I would hazard a guess that most young teachers tend to mirror the hands-off, sage-on-the-stage, direct instruction, content delivery styles of their former teachers. So clearly you realized you did not want to teach in the manner that you were taught. So my mm -hmm. question is why? What what led you to your mission and vision of personal connection? So as I reflected in my master's program, you know, we had a lot of self-reflection, a lot of thinking of what kind of teacher do you want to be? And from the beginning, I wanted to be different. I wanted to be a teacher where students could come to me when they needed help. I wanted to have that connection where it wasn't just, I'm your teacher, I see you every single day for one hour or an hour and a half. I wanted to make sure that students felt like they were learning how to build healthy relationships in the classroom and not just through their peers, but how to... Um, those relationships with teachers and adults because growing up, I didn't have that. I didn't know how to um, talk to adults. I didn't know how to do things outside of the classroom because in school, it was basically, here's your content, here's your work, 
get it done. And after school, my parents worked um, long hours. They had their own business. And so when I came home, I was kind of by myself trying to figure out how to do things on my own. And I wanted to be a role model to students in middle school so that they could learn from me and get those life skills so that they can be prepared for high school and beyond. I think one of the things that I'm thinking about, Mickey, is that there will come a day sometime far in the future of this podcast when educators that I'm interviewing will not say that I want to be different. In fact, there will be there will be so much like the the educator that you are um, that you know what I mean. It's like um, right now we're in a situation where we do have these these pockets of innovation all across the state, and I, I think it's really special that. Um, the work that you're doing is slowly starting to catch on with other teachers. And we'll talk about that later, about how mm-hmm. that happens. But that that's very cool. So, so again, good segue to the next question, Mickey. Um, I've known your principal, Kim Sanders, for about five years. She's really one of my superheroes. She's a a true leader who leads by doing in our Hawaii Department of Education. Teachers teach in context, as you know, by which I mean they exist within the culture of a school. So Eva Makai Middle has, I think, over 1,000 students. Am I correct about that? Um, Yeah, there's about 1,400. 1,400. So what is the culture of your school, and how does that culture support your mission and vision as a teacher? So our school is all about empowering, exploring, and excelling together. And that is what I like to do. And a lot of the teachers and the staff are at our school, they want to do new things. They want to try different things and they want to help students succeed. And with Kim's leadership, she provides that flexibility and that opportunity for us to think outside of the box. And it's pretty cool when you get to go into a principal's office and be like, Hey, I want to try this. And she's like, yeah, let's do it. You know? And um, the culture at our school, we work on teams and departments and, we think of ways to reach students and to include that technology in a meaningful way and not just using technology as a filler. You know, we're, we're trying to see how we can innovate and how we can help students use their creativity and reach and find their passions, their purpose. And Kim has done such a tremendous job with honing into students' interests and passions. She has students painting murals all over the campus. And and, um, we have our uh, media that does awesome videos and highlights um, what students and teachers are doing in our campus. And I feel like our culture, the students that come to our school, they really want to be there and they want to learn. What are some of the ways that that culture of innovation that Kim is supporting in the faculty is actually passed down to the students themselves? Well, you know, there are some teachers that are a little uh, not as tech savvy as others. 
Um, but she helps us by providing professional development and, you know, she allows us to have different committees that help us with um, visible learning and um, social emotional learning and just also, you know, health and wellness. And by honing into the whole person or the whole child, we're able to tap into multiple um, interests and passions and we're able to have students with multiple electives. She, you know, if there's an elective you want to teach and we were able to provide that, um, she opens up multiple um, electives for students to take to see if they're interested. I mean, next school year, we're opening a couple more electives and like drama and uh, we're continuing dance. So she's, she's trying to help students see that it's not just about content, um, and we're moving towards there's different avenues of passion and how do you um, connect what your passion is to what you're learning in your core classes. Wow, that's so interesting, Mickey. It's like you guys have all collectively realized that you can't make 1,400 people move exactly in the same direction um, and that a better pathway, a more innovative pathway is to allow people to pursue individual interests and purposes and passions um, almost as if the school starts to tar starts to break apart into these little innovation hubs but everybody's still moving together around the central concept of personal connection and innovation mm -hmm. right is that does that sound right yep it, it does so okay so perfect segue to question number four um, so if I have this story right, Mickey, um, while teaching math at Eva Mackay, you were given an opportunity to develop a coding elective the next school year. And most teachers would have left it at that um, and then gone ahead and developed the course and delivered it the next school year as part of the, as part of the, the entire package of courses. But you decided to start promoting the class during lunch periods. So it sounds like you brought your acumen for, for selling advertising to the table. Um, so what's behind that marketing decision that you made and what did it look and sound and feel like as you made the pitch to kids about taking this class? So we've been trying to promote computer science, um, within our school. And one day I kind of had a conversation with Kim and I was just like, Hey, you know, if you ever want a coding teacher, you want to start doing that, you know, I, I'm all for it and she's like well okay let's do it and what had happened was the registration had already gone through and so I basically didn't have an enrollment so I was like you know what I'm going to go to every grade level lunch and I'm going to promote it and see what happens from there and so I, I put up a video during lunch and I I just stood there and I was like, hey, do you want to sign up? This is a cool class. You know, it's a, a totally new class. You'll need the technology for the future. It's, you know, you'll learn how to program things and code websites. And a lot of students were hesitant, but they knew me and they had that connection with me. So they signed up right away because they, they, they trusted me with the education that they were about to get through this elective, which was coding. So that must have been super exciting. Yeah, it, it it was 
it was quite exciting at first. I only had maybe about 30 students that signed up. And I was like, okay, let's, we're going to do this. And Kim assured me that, you know, it's the first, it's the first year it'll pick up. And by the end of the school year, I had about 80 students, maybe like 85 students. So it did pick up. And a lot of students, once they started my class and started talking to their, 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 their peers, their friends, I started getting more requests from the counselors like, hey, can this student switch into your class? And I was like, okay, sure, let's do it. And um, now this year, my second year doing it, I have about 150 students. Wow. That sounds like a perfectly executed marketing plan, Mickey. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, what is your, what, at that point in time when you started marketing the course, what was your coding background? So um, in my master's, uh, no, sorry, my undergraduate, uh, when I was at UH, I did web development. Um, so I really liked creating visual pieces on the computer. And through that, I, on my own, I started doing my own HTML and CSS and creating websites on my own just because I liked doing it. And then from there... I went to teacher professional development courses with code.org and I became friends with people that were in coding and that just pursued, that's how I pursued this passion. And I started talking to Kim about it because I, it's something that I really felt students needed um, to help prepare them for the future. Wow. It's so interesting. So, so look, here's a, here's a tough question. Um, conversations around a process where teachers have to market courses to students can get sometimes pretty dicey and heated. Um, most teachers rely on the tradition of a, of a course canon where you have a particular order that you take the courses and uh, it's highly structured and it requires kids to follow a certain path. Um, most teachers would not be comfortable with an open market approach to courses. So what, what are your thoughts about this, given your experience of marketing your coding course? Um, my thought is that if you don't allow somebody to try and to explore and to experience, it's a disservice because you don't know how good somebody is going to be until they try. And in my classroom, there are a bunch of students that sign up and you wouldn't believe the projects that they turn in and my mind is blown. And there are some, some of their projects, if I, don't, if I didn't give them the flexibility of creating and innovating and coming up with their own solutions, I would have the same exact um, project turned in at the end of the day but now I have all of these projects that are different that fulfill the criteria and there are some projects where I go to the students and I'm like how did you do that because my my students are the the drive that they have and their interest and passion in coding allows them to um, 
hone into different parts of their learning and to be critical thinkers and problem solvers and do something that they really enjoy. Mm. So let's let's say let me come at it from a different angle. Let's say that you there was a job posting, a job available at a school where all of the courses, um, you know, ran, whether or not a course runs or not, is entirely um, determined by the number of students who actually sign up for it. In other words, it's a completely free market approach. How would you how would you feel about coming into a school like that? So if I'm getting your question right, you're asking what would it feel like if students were, were classes were only provided if you had the number of students. Is that correct? No. What I mean is like there is no um, required set of courses, that there is a catalog of courses. Um, I see. Right. And, and students get to choose which courses they take. And it's entirely determined by the market. Um, whether or not a course runs is whether or not a student signs up for it. I see what you're saying. So it's kind of like it's kind of like college. You get to go in and mm-hmm. choose what courses and classes you'd like. Right. And um, I I feel that students should have um, their their own choice in what they want to learn. But yet there, there has to be, I feel like there needs to be a balance between content and electives because if students are, are doing an elective, if they're not exposed to basic math, that could in turn affect their future. Um, for example, students in my class, they do incorporate math with coding and when they don't know how to calculate something they take out their cell phones and they start using the calculator so i feel like students should have some choice but there should also be certain criteria that um they do certain classes and criteria that they do meet in order to Hmm. um be prepared for the future so there's some baseline content or baseline skills um that are required right so okay Mm -hmm. so mickey question number five you, you developed your coding course curriculum with a combination of three days of, of summer training um, and resources from Project Lead the Way and Code.org, and you had a cache of instructional strategies already at that point. So how did you stitch this all together? Like, what, why these two organizations in particular, and what were your strategies at that point for actually developing yourself as the teacher who was going to teach this coding class? So when I, when I started building my curriculum, I thought of the students first. I thought about what would be valuable to my students and what would pique their interest. So when I started, uh, when I went through training and I started learning about the different aspects to the curriculum, I was told, you know, I would need to, because our school is, um, um, does project lead the way that one of the modules I would be doing is computer science for innovators and makers. And so that, um, that curriculum was maybe about a semester long and I had a year long. And so I reached out to, um, friends from code.org and I signed up to, 
uh, well, I applied to be in a cohort that went to um, Georgia and learned how to teach the curriculum. And through that, I was able to get a lot of resources that I could use to help connect the physical and the virtual aspect of computer science. And then through that year course, students were asking to continue because they they wanted their learning to continue with coding and computer science. And so they then I asked Kim, like, is it possible to do an advanced class? And there I had to market it again, and I had to um, make sure that I, I had kids sign up. And through, through my advanced class, they're able to learn more about how does technology and coding impact your community and your school. And that's where they were able to use what they learned from the first year into the second year where they are able to start podcasting and learning about esports and how to use technology to control the aquaponics system and um, learning about what their interests were at the beginning helped me expand my curriculum as it is now. Wow, that's so amazing, Nikki. So what about Project Lead the Way? What is that and how did that, uh, how did that fit into you know, the tapestry that you were weaving together that it was your development? So Project Lead the Way is a, is a, it's a program um, that many students, uh, many schools adopt, and it provides a, a lot of avenues in com- computer science. So there's robotics, there's um, there's STEM, there's multiple um, pathways, and we wanted to use Project Lead the Way because Cam- um, Campbell High School also does Project Lead the Way. So we wanted to have a clear pathway for students who are in our classes will be able to connect that with what they're going to be doing in Campbell. So Project Lead the Way is it's, it's a comprehensive and rigorous uh, curriculum that provides students with um, a lot of information on the background of computer science and how that can impact your world and where the advancements in technology are going and how to create prototypes and um, build things and that are new to solve problems. I think what I love about that, Mickey, is that this is a middle school having serious conversations with a high school um, and creating a sense of continuity for the kids as they move from one to the other. Yeah, it's 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 a it's pretty awesome to know that I'm part of such a huge movement, and I'm hoping that what I teach them is instilled in them so that they can use this not only for in the classroom, but also outside of the classroom. And, you know, winning that Milken Award, um, I'm able to use some of that for a scholarship to um, Campbell. And I haven't told them yet, but um, I want to create a scholarship for students that pursue computer science and STEM. And so every year when they graduate, I'll be able to choose, help choose a student who can um, get a small scholarship to pursue careers in computer science or STEM or technology, you know, and and help them get a head start to their future. And the kids are already predisposed to want to make a difference in their community. So it's mm-hmm. even amplified in that way. Wow, that's just, that's so fascinating. So I, I have one more follow-up question to question number five. 
um, and then we'll take a quick break. So Mickey, um, to the educator listeners out there who, or the listener who wants to step out of his or her safe zone and try something new, I'm going to recommend three things that he or she needs to do. And I I would love for you to comment on each one of them. Okay. So here's number one. Number one is have a conversation with your school administrator first. So what are your thoughts about that? I think that would be step one is to have a plan on what you want to bring to the school and your purpose. So, for example, if you feel that there's a need for a certain elective or a certain class, talk to your administrator because they're able to see if it's possible. You know, if it's not possible, there's other avenues such as, you know, an after-school club or um, there's also uplinks or having um, a lunch buddy system, something, a different avenue to to bring out that passion or that idea that a teacher has. And it's been super critical for you to have Kim Sanders' support in this process, right, for you? Yes. Mm-hmm. So number two then, and kind of it's a riff off of number one, is um, spend time thinking about possible liabilities. So what are your thoughts about that? So liabilities. Um, Where some, something could go wrong and you just, mm. yeah, you have to you have to pre-plan to a certain extent. What are, what are some of yeah. the liabilities, legal liabilities, other liabilities? So there's always that question of what if, you know, and when I started this whole new um, course, I was worried about how, you know, the community or parents would, would feel about the course and if they saw a purpose for it. And, you know, with this year, I, I started teaching esports and, you know, I had to send home that, that letter to make sure that, um, I wasn't liable for, you know, things that, because e- with eSports, we were using a certain game that was for rated for teens, and it was for eighth graders who are teens, but also to get that open communication with parents being like, hey, this is something new that we're trying. This is what we're doing. Um, um, you, you're allowed to say yes or no. And just, I think, having that open communication will give you a little less anxiety when it comes to liability and making sure that you're teaching um, something that is is um, relevant to what students need. Mm. So, uh, wow, what a great insight. An uninformed parent is a liability, um, but an informed parent can definitely be an asset to any project that you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so then the third one, Mickey, is develop a professional learning community for feedback on the work that you're trying to do or the innovations that you're trying to to carry out. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, yes, absolutely. So going to these trainings, um, before I started teaching my course, I made it a point to make friends and build relationships with people because I knew that I didn't have all the answers and I was starting off new. And by putting myself out there and talking to people and 
them sharing their ideas, I was able to solidify what I was going to teach and um, get ideas from other people on what I can do to improve my course. And I think it's, it's really important to have that support group because there are going to be times where you're feeling, did I, did I do something wrong? Am I doing this right? How do I know that I'm impacting students? How do I know that they're learning? And those are some questions that a lot of teachers think about as they're, you know, they're trying to teach and trying to have students learn is, am I doing it the right way? Am I, is there another way that I could have reached my students? And I feel like a support group is very healthy because you don't want to be stressing and, and, feeling like you're alone, you know, you want to have somebody you can collaborate with and help you through this process. So Mickey, at Eva Mackay Middle, you mentioned earlier that you guys work in teams. So tell me about about how that works uh, within the culture of the school. That uh, How do you guys carve out time together to do the kinds of things that you were just describing? So throughout the day, um, so we have multiple teams. So um, we have a grade level team, and then we also have a department as well as different committees um, for different things. And so throughout the day, there are certain periods where we have an off period, and that's where you can meet with your team. After school, we have designated department um, time. And it's interesting because as an elective team, we have multiple teachers that are in different um areas of like what they're teaching is totally different from another teacher and so me being the only coding teacher when I come to these elective department meetings it's cool because we get to share what we're doing and get a different perspective from other teachers and then it poses other questions for me and it gives me a way to self-reflect and to think about what I'm teaching based on different perspectives. Wow that's so Interesting, like if I taught history at Eva Mackay, that I actually could be valuable to you as a, as a person who provides feedback, even though mm -hmm. I'm not a coding teacher, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. Okay, awesome. So, hey, everyone, we're going to take a short break and come back with more questions for Mickey Kakesi. Stay with us. What could your school do with $25,000? Hawaii Public School teachers apply for the Education Innovation Grant from Farmers Insurance Hawaii and the Public Schools of Hawaii Foundation to make your big idea a reality. The Education Innovation Grant fosters unique, innovative learning experiences benefiting teachers, students, and the greater community. The deadline to apply is May 30th. One Oahu winner and one neighbor island winner will be announced in October. To apply, go to FarmersHawaii.com slash Education Innovation. Toy and Amber from Entre Ed Talk. We are so excited to uplift this cool new podcast coming to you from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. What school could be in Hawaii? As always, we're super excited to support innovation and education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of these incredible educators on our own podcast, Entre Ed Talk. If you're looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators from across the world, join us as we share their journey and insight. Be sure to check us out wherever you listen to podcasts at Entre Ed Talk and like, subscribe, and drop us a review today. Thanks for tuning in. 
Hey, I'm Tyler Kern from MarketScale, and you're listening to What School Could Be in Hawaii, a podcast partnership between MarketScale and Josh Rapoon, exploring the latest insights and thought leadership in the world of edtech. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts these days, or just head to marketscale.com, click on industries at the top of the page, and scroll down to edtech. We'll see you there. everyone. We are back with Mickey Kakesi, a science, math, and coding guide, mentor, coach, and sponsor at Eva Mackay Middle in Hawaii. So Mickey, um, question number six. In the larger conversation about redesigning education in Hawaii, and maybe even the nation and maybe even the world, many of us are talking about public exhibitions of learning rather than typical tests, papers, prescribed projects, more tests, more papers, et cetera. So it sounds to me like you're having your students exhibit their work, their coding, their products, by asking for continual prototype feedback. So what, what makes exhibitions of learning important to you and your students, and what steps can educator listeners take to incorporate exhibitions of learning into their classrooms and their teaching? So I think it's really important um, going back to talking about perspectives. Um, when students know that what they are doing and building will be shown to others, they get a sense of pride and they want to build and create something that others will have interest in. And when I did my coding class um, last year. We had a coding night, and that was their big night to show their parents what they've been doing in the classroom. And so parents, when they showed up, they were given the opportunity to start learning how to code, and then they also got the opportunity to look at their digital portfolios. And those digital portfolios had videos and reflections and um, a detailed synopsis of what they learned and how it was relevant to their future and to the class criteria. So I think it's really important that students get ideas and, and um, feedback from not just me, but from their peers, from their parents, from people in our school, in our community. Um, we also did an app challenge where um, students ha designed an app and they had to promote what it was used for. And so we put up all of their posters in the cafeteria and um, students from the whole school could vote and decide on which one they liked and why. And from that process, you could see students trying to market their app and their students feeling that sense of pride and like, explaining why their app was important and creating prototypes um, for others to see how technology is connected to everyday um, things that you use was really powerful because then it got other students outside of my classroom thinking about their futures and how they use technology every day in their lives. So this sounds like it, it, like moments like this, Mickey, sound hugely energetic. Like there's there must be a lot of energy in the room. And I know this sounds a little bit rhetorical, but like how important is that energy just to the continual process of moving the kids along their their learning journeys? So the energy is absolutely important. If they can sense um, any type of emotional change um, and, you know, if you show them and 
have help them feel like they can do it, that anything is possible. Um, it, it makes them want to keep continue learning and understanding that there is going to be times of frustration and struggle and persevering through it is all the difference. This school year, um, when students were creating um, a game, they're creating uh, computer games online. Um, there were students that did the bare minimum and there were students that went above and beyond and they did their own research because at the end of this project, they knew that every student in our class, in all of my classes, 150 of them would be voting on what game they liked the best and why. And so there were a, a huge amount of, of games that were, that blew my mind away. There were some games that had over a thousand lines of code. Um, so, wow. you know, the energy is, is really important and just, Having that simple smile or that, hey, you're doing great, or wow, that's an amazing idea. I can't wait to see how this turns out. Gives them that hope that they need to continue learning. And even the open-ended question that's just like, so tell me, what is this app intended to do? Um, opens mm -hmm. the door for the kids to be able to respond. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so I'm going to put you a little bit on the hot spot here. Um, let's say, same same line of thinking, let's say an English teacher friend and colleague at Eva Mackay Middle expresses an interest in the idea of a public display of learning because he or she happened to see something that you were doing. What would you tell that person? How, how would you explain or what, what steps would you offer to institute a public exhibition of learning into, let's say, an English course? So that's a good question. Um, we do have teachers at our school that already do things like this and they showcase students' work. But if it were a teacher that hasn't ventured out into exhibitions, I would tell them that it is a learning process. Um, the first time you do it, it's not going to be perfect. And you need to be okay with the flexibility and taking it day by day and having others help plan it out because you can't do it all by yourself and letting them step back and kind of let go of that control to allow students to showcase themselves because they know more about themselves than you do and allowing them to use this as a leadership platform for them to, to talk to people and then explain what they're doing in the classroom versus you trying to take the, the lead and, um, making everything work out exactly how you want it to because at the end those those times where things don't turn out how you want it to make all the difference because there are new things that happen within that process i think mickey if i was that english teacher that the difficulty for me would be in thinking well most of the way that i evaluate my students is through their writing um, and through those writing assignments that i give to them so I'm trying to think like, what is it that I'm, that my kids are actually going to exhibit? Um, and all of a sudden, I'm just feeling like I have to step outside the box here as a teacher because of that question. What are my students going to exhibit, right? Like, how does that yeah. work? So if, if students are showcasing a piece of writing, if they were allowed to write about a topic that they're passionate about, it would be 
a different scenario when showcasing because they would be able to share what they've learned and why they chose that specific topic and, you know, how they provided that evidence. You know, if it were a debate or a, um, you know, a, a hot topic, they would be able to explain why they felt that way. They could also do Socratic seminars, which have everybody kind of on um, different ends where they can share their ideas and come to an understanding of different perspectives. And, you know, just because somebody is in English and they have to write an essay, it's not, it's not just writing. It's about what goes into a good piece. What kind of hook do you have? What kind of evidence do you have to support your thoughts or your opinions? And I feel like when you have an exhibition where people can showcase their writing, it could be any type of writing. You know, if they get a different platform of creating books or creating a website. One of my students created a website when they had to do a, um, a uh, I think it was a science paper or an English paper, and they ended up turning it into a different platform. So giving students flexibility on how they showcase their writing would be important when they they do an exhibition. Wow, that's so that's so awesome. I'm thinking back to when I was in high school. Um, I had one teacher in particular that had a tremendous impact on me, um, and it was actually in an English course, and he created a, a semester project, but it was an open project. It wasn't prescribed, so we got to choose what we wanted to do. And I took um, a book of fables and turned it into a movie, and I actually recruited my, my brothers as actors uh, and it actually involved uh, a horse in one of the stories. So I had to go get my brother to bring his horse into the story. But we filmed it. And it actually, uh, almost 40 years later, it still exists on a DVD. Um, and I'm like super proud of the fact that I, I was able to do that. But it was because of that teacher who gave me that opportunity to publicly exhibit my learning. Um, it made all the difference in the world. That's cool. That's awesome to hear. So, okay, so segue to question number six. Um, so, again, within the larger conversation, Mickey, about education redesign, there's something called Shadow a Student Challenge. And um, our listeners can find out more about that at shadowastudent.org. Um, so shadowing has become a really valuable tool for you. What is the, the central core value of shadowing for you? How does it work? For me, um, for me, it was understanding and empathizing with students. So I came across the Shadow of Student campaign, and I was like, you know, this is something I want to do because I want to understand my students. You know, every day students would come in during recess and lunch, and they would be just telling me about their challenges, their struggles in their classes, and what's going on and how they're feeling. And I was like, you know, I want to do this. I want to see and feel what you're feeling so I can understand and use that knowledge to impact my future teaching. And so I brought this to um, Kim and she was all for it. And then because I'm on the social emotional learning committee, um, I brought it to the committee and 
they were all about it as well. We did have some pushback because it's different. And a lot of people are, are scared of different and um, they don't, they don't let people come into the classroom because they feel like they're going to be observed. But we were able to, you know, get our staff on board. And through this experience, I was able to learn so much about what our students go through on a daily basis. And it was very eye-opening. I was exhausted by recess. I went to classes late. And by lunch, I was already done. I was checked out. My brain um, could not handle anymore. And wow. it was a very impactful and and awesome experience. And I'm so glad I was able to do it. So what in what ways do you gather feedback after shadowing days? And how are students involved in reflections on shadowing days and the, and the feedback that's provided? So we, um, we chose a student that we had a positive uh, relationship with. And so I basically um, followed her schedule and uh, went to her classes, hung out with her at recess and at lunch. And after each period, we had a quick survey that um, aligned to the social emotional learning um, aspects, so like self-awareness and um, management and all those things. And so um, after each period, we collected that data. And then at the end of the day, we just had an informal just talk story, you know, like, how did you feel? You know, what what did you get from this? And I was able to tell them how I felt and how I could empathize with them and understand how they are feeling, how they're feeling. And so through those reflections, we were able to bring that data to our staff and kind of explain to them the importance of building those positive relationships and understanding, um, you know, the student's perspective. And to what extent did your your fellow faculty who did um, shadowing days, did, to what extent did they experience what you experienced, which was, you know, by lunchtime I'm exhausted. How is it possible that we're asking kids to, to do this? What what was that like? So we all, we all felt the same way. We were just, um, at the end of the day, at the end of the school day, we were all just like, let's just go home because I am so exhausted. And they all had thoughts about what are they doing in the classroom to engage their students and to motivate them. And, you know, a lot of classes, students sit there for an hour because they're either listening to a lecture, doing their work, and there's no movement. And so it, it helped open up a lot of conversations about what more can we do to help with that motivation and engagement within the school day. So it sounds like in a way, those shadowing conversations, especially amongst your peers, was actually a teacher capacity building process. You were you were yeah. you were growing your teacher capacity muscles together as you got to know what was happening with your kids during the day. Yeah, and you know every experience was different um, because of the relationships that you build with certain students, and I feel like I build a quite a positive relationship so even though I was shadowing you know we went in with our uniform we went in we dressed out for PE we had our backpacks we did the work you know and and the teachers that we visited they treated us just as students and you know it, it was for other students to see us doing it they had a lot of questions like why are you doing this what are you doing and 
when we explained what we were doing, they had a better understanding and that opened up conversations with students as well as showing them that we care about them and we're trying to understand what they're going through. Wow. And ultimately, that goes back to the question that we addressed about school culture, right? When a, when a school culture mm-hmm. is is in, um, reflective in that way about itself, then something special starts to emerge. Mm-hmm. So awesome. So Mickey, question number seven. Um, many of your students start the year unsure of how their studies connect to their future lives and careers. This is something that you have written about. And, and I would say, heck, you know, most students start their school years wondering in what ways their studies might connect to their, you know, future lives or even to their current lives. And um, where is the relevancy in all this? So you're working to bridge that relevancy gap. How are you doing that? Specifically, what do you do in math and coding and STEM to make learning relevant? So, again, going back to students, um, and what their interests are. So when I have, when I pose a, a problem to them, they in turn think of a solution that would impact not only themselves, but their school, their community. So one of the projects that they do is where they have to create a prototype that um, somebody could use if they were exercising or running in the dark, you know, wearable technology. Mm-hmm. How would that impact um, their community members or their school and also you know if they have pets at home and they're not able to feed their pets they create a prototype where they have um, they have to teach a dog how to um, use technology so it, it's relevant in a way where they're learning soft skills that will help them in and out of the classroom as well as learning how technology around them works so how those circuits work, how the sensors work. So we go through a whole bunch of of circuitry where they learn how to code with circuits, with LEDs, with pressure sensors, and they apply that with things in the real world. So I tell them, what do you think uses a light sensor? What do you think uses a pressure sensor? And that's where they can tie in that relevancy to what they're using on a daily basis. Wow, that's just so fantastic. Um, and it requires, just like design thinking, it, the, the initial step is empathy. So you have to know, um, you have to explore, you have to ask about what's going on in the world around you. Um, mm-hmm. and you have to be inherently curious in order to move through the process that way. Yeah. And it, it's it's pretty cool because this school year when we had open house, instead of being one of those teachers that, you know, um, it's like, okay, this is our syllabus. This is what we're doing. When parents came in, they started building circuits together and, um, you know, some of them took took home some circuits and they were able to use copper tape and LEDs to try to turn the light on with a pressure sensor. And so, you know, bringing that that relevancy and the it shows the importance of what this class is and why students should be taking it. Wow, that's so funny. I remember um, one time when I was teaching history that instead of the typical open houses you describe where you just tell people what the what the syllabus is, I actually had my parents start to do a primary source exercise um, trying to work on an essential question based on primary sources. And I remember how shocked they were. They were like, what's going on here? This is not what's supposed to happen at open house. Um, so Mickey, um, in your advanced coding class uh, for middle schoolers, your course description states 
students will leave the course being able to do the following. And I'm actually going to work all the way through all the bullets here, okay? So the bullets are, they're going to be able to develop skills and knowledge to effectively use the internet and technology, meaning digital citizenship. They'll be able to create an app. They'll be able to build and program Arduino kits for school's aquaponics system, learn how to program with Python, create a podcast, safely use a screwdriver to dissect a laptop. That's one of my personal favorites there. Um, demonstrate the ability to use data analytics, goal setting, and decision-making skills to enhance gaming success in esports, and create effective streaming videos for a specific audience. So at first, I didn't know how the heck to ask you about these outcomes, but here yeah. goes. Um, give me a specific example of how your guidance, your coaching, your mentoring supported a student working towards one of these outcomes. So a lot of those outcomes, unfortunately, because of the COVID-19, um, a lot of those outcomes I'm not able to yeah. accomplish this school year, but one of them was building an app. So there was a congressional app challenge that Ed Case put on this year, and um, I was like, you know what, class, we're going to do it. Let's try it. Let's, let's see what we come up with. And so they built these apps for months, and we entered the competition and we were called to, you know, the awards. And when we went to this award ceremony, even though it was a brand new competition and, you know, it, it was very uh, stressful and challenging for students. And when we got there, it was pretty small because it was the first one, but they recognized that they were the only middle school that applied. And so when they were done with this award ceremony, they kind of reflected back on what they did and how impactful it was because they were kind of on the same, same, um, same scope as high schoolers. And so they were making those connections with what they're doing and what, what older students are doing and helping them push through the challenge of completing this competition was kind of tough at the beginning because they were like, you know what, I don't want to do it. I'm afraid, you know, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. And with guidance and learning together and helping them feel the struggle and persevere at the end, they were so proud of themselves. You know, they went back to school like, you know what, we didn't win, but we were the only middle schoolers there, you know, and the rest were high schoolers. And so for them to feel that pride and to feel that sense of accomplishment, um, you know, meant all the difference through all those struggles that we had along the way. Mm. So the, as I look through this list, this bulleted list, um, Mickey, there seem to be varying degrees of difficulty in terms of like reaching outcomes, like, you know, the difference between safely using a screwdriver to dissect a laptop, say, and creating a podcast. Um, but degree of, di degree of difficulty is relative to the person who's executing the the project itself so how do you deal with that the the degrees of difficulty between the different things that you want them to be able to do so we all learn together so when we have a new project they are given a choice on um, what role they want to play in their group so each each group has um, each person in the group has a specific role and they um, 
experience this project together. So when they don't understand something, they feel comfortable enough to, to ask their peers. And we research things online. Like we watch YouTube videos. We um, get input from people in the community. And we use that as a way to take it step by step and go through it one day by day, you know, step by step to get to that outcome. So when we start, some students have more knowledge than others. And those students that have more knowledge, they in turn become those leaders and those teachers to those that don't understand at the beginning. And then they kind of work together to expand what they know and how they can make improvements in what they're doing. Which is one of the most important success factors in the 21st century is your ability to be a resource to someone else and your ability to reach out to somebody when you need a resource. Mm-hmm. That's that's just that's awesome. So I, I want to ask you about partnerships, and this is still in the in the same question um, about your course. So I, I just want to briefly tell you about a theory that I have, Mickey, about partnerships, um, school community partnerships. So I think for for a long time back in the in the eighties and the nineties, um, we got into what I called a, a sort of three ring binder state, where all of these community organizations out there that were trying to do good in the community were putting together educational programs and they would print them up and put them in three ring binders and then they would come to the schools and they would make a pitch for that particular program um, and they would hand over the three ring binder. And most of the time, in my observation, teachers would say, wow, that's really cool. And they take the three ring binder and they put it on the shelf um, because there's already so much to do in a given day anyway. But I feel like the, the era of the three-ring binder process is over and that now schools are starting to develop very intimate and personal relationships with organizations outside of school, um, especially as project-based, problem-based learning takes hold. So m- my question is, what external partnerships have you developed over the past several years? And what does each partnership bring to the table for you? Um, so my first year with coding, I um, reached out to Apple and Microsoft because they're, you know, very, um, they're, they're very um, popular um, technology, you know, companies, and they're at the forefront of a lot of new advance, advancements in technology. So I reached out to them and um, asked if we could have field trips so that students could get gain access, you know, to things that they may not have. And a lot of students have never been to Ala Moana or even to town. And so giving them that access and helping them learn about careers in technology outside of the classroom um, helped um, me with what I'm doing in the classroom. So those partnerships were really important because now um, – this school year, I was able to continue working with Microsoft, and I've been working with a, uh, uh, working on a proposal to continue that partnership and see if Microsoft would sponsor our school. And then we, I want to hopefully open it up to our whole district and see if we can allow everyone in our community, in the Ever Beach community, to have this access and to have this partnership um, within our community. 
And also at the same time, you you have a principal, again, Kim Sanders, who is absolutely supportive of building external partnerships with the school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. She's been she's been amazing in that respect uh, with the number of partners that Eva Mackay has actually built uh, or relationships that have been built over the years. Yeah, that's really yeah. cool. So, okay, so question number eight, Mickey. Um, in advance of our interview, I sent you a link to Ted Dintersmith's film, Most Likely to Succeed, which does two things. First, it, it lays out an argument about our so-called age of acceleration and the changing nature of work and jobs. And then second, it focuses on High Tech High, a public charter school in San Diego that is working to prepare kids to succeed in this increasingly complex and accelerated 21st century. So what are your thoughts about this film and what questions did it generate for you and your husband who works at Myron B. Thompson uh, Charter School, which is an e-learning charter school here in Hawaii? So what are your thoughts about the film and what questions did it generate for the two of you? So while we were watching um, that film, there were a bunch of times where we had to pause it and we had, you know, deep conversations about how is this impacting students and how is the social emotional aspect, you know, um, how is that aspect being touched upon while they do these projects? Because in that movie, there was that one student who was the leader and their group didn't make it to exhibition night, but he kept persevering through it, you know, and we were thinking about, you know, is this where our schools are leading and how do we get our schools to start making that change and allowing students to hone into their passions and to, to integrate multiple content areas within one and helping students use what they are using now or what they're into now with their education so that they can create those experiences and learn by doing because memorization after you memorize something for a test, a couple months later, if you had to take that test again, would you remember all the same answers? Would you get the same grade? And so we've, we've seen through history that memorization, it stays with you for a shorter time than actually doing something physical and using those experiences and that collaboration to produce something at the end. So you guys were pausing because... You wanted to talk about the social and emotional sort of support systems that were uh, that were baked into the into the process of doing project-based learning. Yes, and we were thinking about you know how do we like how was the because the teachers were very hands off when it when it was um, time for them to build their projects and things like that. So, you know, the teachers kind of stepped back and they're like, you know, we're going to let you figure it out on your own. And so I kind of felt for that one student who was like, you know, stressing out and, and, and trying to work so hard to get it done. But at the end, he persevered through it and he learned and self-reflected and he had more of a self-awareness that I think teachers have a hard time teaching because when students want to learn something and they do something and they reflect on it, they're able to understand the why. And sometimes that's hard to teach. It's a, it's a difficult thing. That, by the way, that student's name was Brian, right? So he's the kid, for those people who are listening who've seen the film, he's the kid who 
whose team doesn't uh, finish the project in time for public exhibition night. Um, he's a particularly interesting character in that story, Mickey, because he keeps on going all the way through the summer and ultimately does create mm-hmm. it. But at the same time, what about his teammates? Um, we don't. The film doesn't spend any time really talking to his teammates about how they felt about the fact that mm-hmm. they, they couldn't get to the end of the project there. But the point you're raising is actually a, a really profound one. It's like in what ways, when we're doing this shift in the direction of project-based learning, in what ways are we socially and emotionally supporting the kids as they go through the process of, of in a in a resilient way making their way towards the goals that they set out to achieve. Yeah. So okay, so so Ted Dintersmith actually has a specific question for you. Um, I reached out to him, Vicky, and um, so he has a he has a specific question. So Ted's asking, what will your students be doing this summer? And I know we're in a totally flipped out moment here with COVID nineteen, but. Um, let's say that your kids were going through a normal school year. What would they be doing this summer? And in what ways might they be marketing their skills um, and their habits and their dispositions and their ability to, to um, you know, carry out services for people? Might they be able to do that out in the community? Um, he's betting that they could earn more than most University of Hawaii graduates, which is a great compliment to you. Um, so... In the summer, I, you know, because I've partnered with um, Microsoft, well, um, you know, I've been talking to um, Christina um, for almost two years, and, you know, she's been providing me with opportunities that students can get into um, when there's holidays or when there's summer. um, There's summer camps that I could recommend for students, as well as um, we went on a field trip to Hawaii Pacific University, and a lot of students found out that there are competitions where you could do, you could get into an esports team and, you know, earn money for scholarships um, towards college. And so a lot of students, they want to pursue gaming. You know, a lot of them are gamers. And even right now with the COVID-19, some students, because they have a lot of time on their hands, I'm getting all these emails of, Hey, I'm creating another game. You know, I am, revising my game I'm making improvements to my game so even though they're not in the classroom they're still thinking about our class and what they can do more because they're so interested and vested into it mm, wow that's so that's so cool um, I'm, I'm imagining that that kids who come through your courses almost don't see summer as a welcome downtime that they want to just keep right on going they want to keep working yeah. on the things that they're working on that's that's so cool. Yeah. So okay, so related question, um, question number nine. Um, so this question might come out of left field, but I I want to talk about time, Mickey. Um, in your coding course descriptions, which I went through, I spotted the following. Um, you say complete all classwork and projects in the allocated time. Students will be given adequate time in class to complete each assignment. However, if students need more time extensions will be given. And this actually kind of connects to the story of Brian in Most Likely to Succeed. Um, So for more than 100 years, we in American education have been pretty obsessed with time. We, We, the projects and the homework, we have to get them in on time. We have to take tests in an allotted time period. 
Um, and I listened to a Malcolm Gladwell podcast about this, and he makes a compelling case that our focus on timed activities has been at times destructive to a huge percent of our learners who don't learn under the pressure of time. So given your students are so immersed in project-based, problem-based, challenge-based learning, what are your thoughts about time and, and the flexibility or non-flexibility of time? So bringing it back to when I was working in the advertising agency, you know, everything was like, this is due this, then, this is due now, this is now, you know, and a lot of times your cre creativity, it takes, sometimes it, it, it's not, it doesn't start right away. Sometimes it takes, you know, a couple of days to think about it. And so when I have students do projects, I over plan. So when I over plan, I add extra days of class time because I know that they might need it. And so when I do grades as well, when a lot of teachers close their grade book, I don't close mine until the very day or the day before. And I give students that opportunity to, to revise and do as much as they can, because I know that during the, the, the school day, when they're in my class, they're working every single minute. And when the bell rings, they're like, what class is over already? I don't want to, I don't want it to stop. And so they continue during recess or they continue during lunch or they come in, see me during their lunch period. And so, you know, they, they use whatever time they can in and out of the classroom to complete these projects because in school, you, when you have a deadline, it does cause that anxiety. So at the beginning, some students don't even know where to start or how to begin because they're only thinking about, I need to get that A or I need to do a good job on this, but I don't know how. So, so Mickey, in effect, the real world is actually a world of deadlines. They're, in order to be successful in the quote-unquote real world, you have to know how to meet certain deadlines in whatever career you're in, whatever profession you're in. Um, but at the same time, some of the most productive and creative work gets done when not under deadline. So you're trying to achieve that balance in your courses. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah. I, I try to, you know, I give deadlines and, and we have a time frame and we have students plan out, okay, this day I'm going to do this, this day I'm going to do this, so that they can try to meet those deadlines. But at the same time, because I'm, you know, our classroom is very flexible, I do give them that opportunity to turn it in, you know, a day late or over the weekend, I'll give them extra days to complete those projects. But most of them do make the deadline. And those of them that know that they're not going to make the deadline, they come in on their own time and get that one-to-one -one help so that they can finish mm -hmm. the project. And part of the equation is if you're working on something you really care about, um, something that, that has, you know, that's connected to your purpose, um, you are going to try to meet those deadlines just because yeah. you're energized into it. Yeah, that's that's super cool. Um, all right, so Mickey, we've reached question number 10. Um, this oh. has gone by so fast. Um, so here we go. So you, you recently read Ted Dindersmith's book, What School Could Be. Um, typically, I ask guests to end the episode by talking about what they think school could be. And I will ask that question here in this episode, but with a twist for you. Um, you received the new Teacher of Promise Award from the National Milken Educators of Hawaii in 2012. 
And now, seven years later, you are the Milken Educator Award winner for 2019-2020. So clearly, your sense of what school could be evolved and developed between these two awards many, many years apart. So talk to us about how your approach to education evolved between the first award and the second award. I think my view on um, education um, has always been for the students and bridging the gap between what they should know and what we are required to teach has provided me with some flexibility because I can teach the content, but then I can also have that time to help them explore and to help bring that flexibility and that understanding that I'm learning with them. And we are trying to figure out what skills are necessary for them to be successful in the future. And who's to say that every student is meant to go to college? We would hope that they do, but will college be one of the factors later on in their future? And so those soft skills and helping them see the relevancy in what they're learning today and how it will impact them in the future has always been one of my reasons for teaching is how can I have these students be productive citizens and contribute to society? What skills would they need and how can I make sure that I'm doing whatever I can to instill those values and those um, those those that drive that passion because you know I tell them as a teacher it's not about the money you know being a teacher it's because you love what you're doing and I want to try to instill that what they love doing they should pursue it whether they think they can or not because you know maybe they have pushback from parents or they have um, somebody telling them they can't do something and I feel like my teaching has evolved with the relationships of the students and understanding where they're coming from and what their interests are and helping push them towards those interests and passions. Wow that's awesome Mickey. I, I have watched um, some videos of the moment that you received the Milken Award um, just a few weeks ago. Um, it looked like it came as a real surprise to you. Um, what was that moment like? It was definitely a surprise. I, I honestly felt like when they're saying it was a teacher award, I was like, I was in my mind, I, there were a few teachers' names that were going through um, my, my brain. And it was funny because um, we were all dressed nice because we were told that we were supposed to go to this assembly and we have special guests coming and, you know, it's, you know, Women's History Month, and so we're we're Googling all these different people, like, who's going to come? Who's going to come? You know, why are we having such a big um, assembly, and they're blocking off the parking, and so we're like, oh, Michelle Obama's going to come. And, you know, we had all these, <laughs> we had all these rumors going on, and then when they mentioned it was for the Melkin, I did not think it was me at all, because what I do in the classroom I feel like I do it because I care and it's nothing different for me because my whole purpose is to 
to help these students to succeed and to build those skills to impact their lives, you know. And and when they called my name, I just I was speechless. I was frozen. And thankfully, my friends started hugging me because I did not know what to do with myself when they called my name. There were some fellow educators that I saw in the video clips that looked like they were on pogo sticks, Mickey. They were jumping up and down. Uh, (laughs) You know, it was just, it was so fun to watch that happen. Um, So Mickey, preparing for this episode uh, really was such a joy for me and such a privilege. I I learned so many things uh, about you, but also about teaching as well uh, by working through the information about you. Um, And I thank you for that. Um, Congratulations on being a Milken Award winner. And thank you for being on our show today. No, thank you very much for having me. And, and, you know, I'm so thankful for everybody that has helped me along the way. And, you know, my sorority, my teacher sorority that I'm in and all the mentors I've had and, you know, all the teachers that have helped me to be who I am today. I'm very honored and blessed. That's awesome. In this COVID-19 moment, uh, Mickey, we wish your family good health and stay safe for us. Thank you. You too. Welcome back to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. We are so excited to share all of the new educators for this month. So coming up next week is Robin Vieira, the Associate Director of Woe International Center at Punahou School. Find the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher as well as at mltsinhawaii.com. Join the ongoing conversation across social media. Look for Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii on Facebook and at MLTS in Hawaii on Instagram and Twitter. Tag your posts with hashtag what school could be, hashtag deeper learning, hashtag edchat, and hashtag education. Our next interviews will be recorded on Saturday, March 28th. You can join us in the studio through the magic of Facebook Live. Find us at the Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. If you love this podcast series, we would really appreciate a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help us reach a wider audience of innovative educators. And please feel free to share this series with colleagues, friends, and family. Your host is Josh Rapoon. Our podcast consultant and sound engineer is Ryan Ozawa. The editor for this episode is the student managing director, May Kanata, under the guidance of Matthew Williams. Learn more at hawkmediaproductions.com. And special thanks to Ted Dintersmith, author and education change agent. Now, off to your next epic adventure. Class dismissed.